I really wanted to be surrounded by incredibly talented people who are experts in the climate tech space. And I think I just realized that if I wanted this to make the biggest impact possible, then trying to do it alone could work, but also doing it in partnership with OnDeck just felt like it had some more firepower behind it and could have a bigger impact in the end. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Candice Amori, founder of Ondex Climate Tech Fellowship. Candice was looking to make a positive climate impact by building community, and in 2020, she joined Ondex to do just that. After studying climate policy and business in undergrad, Candice planned to devote her life to the ethics of AI and do a PhD in statistics. But in 2018, the IPC special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees came out, and during her first semester of grad school, she knew she wanted to commit the rest of her career to climate. After pitching a program that would bring together entrepreneurs, climate technologists, and experts from across the climate landscape, OnDeck asked her to build out her vision as the OnDeck Climate Tech Fellowship, or ODCT. As the director of ODCT, Candice has brought the larger climate tech ecosystem closer together and helped many talented people start impactful organizations. OnDeck is often referred to as the Stanford for the Internet. Since the fellowship's first cohort in 2016, participants in OnDeck fellowships have started over 400 companies and raised over $500 million in funding for some of the top names in venture capital. One such talented person is Brandon Anderson. Brandon is a climate tech fellow and the founder of Climate People, our partner for season two of The Net Zero Life. For those of you looking to get involved at a climate tech company, we're partnering with Climate People to bring you season two of The Net Zero Life. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. On Deck is where the world's top talent comes to connect and the remote climate tech fellowship is already making major splashes in the VC world. They're also accepting applications. Please enjoy my conversation with Candice Amori, founder of Ondex Climate Tech Fellowship. Candice, thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Nathan. I would love to kick it off with your origin story. You know, we're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about Ondex, community building, all of the above. But in my life, I, I, you know, as a Jewish person, I have a lot of Goldbergs and other German last names, Cohens, you name it. Amori is not a common last name uh, in my friend group. What is the origin of your last name? Great question. Um, it is, it is Chaldean. So Chaldean is spelled C-H-A-L-D-E-A-N. And it's ethnically, I think, almost equivalent to Assyrian, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N. So Amori actually means Amu Ori, which is Uncle Ori, because when my dad's family came to the U.S., they asked him, you know, what do you want your last name to be or what is your last name? And they were like, well, Uncle Ori is already here. We're all going to go be Amu Ori or Amori. So that's my last name. It sounds Italian, but it's actually Iraqi. And we are... 99.98% Middle Eastern. My brother did a DNA test. And I think that we come from like literally just the Babylonian region and we haven't moved for (laughs) for a very long time. And so my parents are Catholic Iraqi, grew up in a tiny village north of Mosul called Talqaif. 
and moved to the U.S. in the 70s. My parents' meeting story is awesome, but but for another time, I think. And, no, give it to us. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so my dad was in the U.S. working for Wonder Bread, and he had remembered that my mom, his both my my mom's dad and my dad's dad were friends back home, and my mom had delivered rice or grains or something to my dad's dad years ago, and my dad saw her, and she was you know probably like in her teens. She was in her teens. My dad remembered her when he was in the U.S. and he was like, I really, you know, she was beautiful and her whole family is beautiful. I'm going to go back to Iraq and see if she is not married. So he went back to Iraq uh, with his dad and asked my mom's dad for her hand. And my mom's dad was actually a really good dad back in the day. because he would ask his daughters, do you like this man? And do you want to marry him? And the only thing my mom knew about him was that he had hair and he was from America. And she was like, sounds great. I'm in. Let's do it. And so she serves you know, him tea. That's like the one time that they meet before they're married. 10 days later, they're engaged. She goes to Lebanon, comes to the US. She leaves her entire family who came in the 90s. But she's in the US with you know, my dad and his family for 20 years. Has, and she's 19, by the way, um, which was considered old. And that's why my dad thought she might be married by then. But, but luckily she wasn't. Um, and so they got to be married. And then my mom had two sons before she was 21, two daughters uh, before she was probably 25 or 26. And then I came seven years after the the last daughter. Okay. So you're the baby in the family. Also, just going back to your mom's qualifications, I fit, you know, one of those as a, a U.S. person, but I definitely don't have hair. So I'm glad for your dad that he was able to fit that at that time. I don't know if he still has hair. Um, but I feel like there's two interesting parallels that I, I want to talk about here, which is like one, the immigrant mentality and curious how that's played a role in your life. And then also there's kind of this myth or idea of the firstborn and the lastborn. Like, do the, any of those identities play into you and how you accomplish what you want to do on a daily basis? Yeah. So the immigrant mentality is, is something that I think about a lot because my parents came here and lived in Detroit and Warren and lived, you know, not a luxurious life at all. And then by the time I came around, because my dad's liquor store did okay, um, I was able to live, you know, a nice life in suburban Michigan and go to college and, you know, win, win research awards to go abroad and, and spent some years abroad as well. But, I mean, my parents didn't support that, but I, but I still was able to do it just because I had a different situation than they did. I didn't get married super young and I, I had a lot of opportunity. And so for me, you know, they always cared a lot about grades. They always cared a lot about my future. And I think I just realized that if I was, you know, the Iraq war happened as well when I was pretty young. And I, you know, would think about myself in Iraq versus where I was today. And I think it just instilled in me a sense of gratitude that I get to do essentially whatever I want and to take advantage of that opportunity and, and know that like I can spend my time thinking about how I want to live and make an impact in the world and how I want to be in the world because my parents gave me a lot of opportunity. So that's the immigrant piece. What was the second question? Oh, being the youngest child. So my friend who's also obsessed with uh, birth order theory, I think, is convinced or was convinced when we first met, and we were friends for like a year, right? Like we knew each other really well, would have yearly hour long calls. And um, it's probably before then, cause I'm sure it came up earlier, but he was convinced that I was an only child or the oldest child. And when I told him that I was the youngest child, he was like, Candace, that is not true. You are not the youngest child. And I think the reason why I come across as either an only child or the oldest child it's because of that seven-year difference. So when I was four, my oldest brother went to college, left home. Five, same thing with my second brother. And then by the time I was in high school, I, I was effectively the only child at home. 
And so I think I have a lot of oldest child or only child, uh, like types of being, but I also am kind of rebellious and like the funny one and, and those things that I think are generally the youngest child. So you spent, you're now the program director of, uh, the climate text fellows at on deck and we'll get there. Um, but you spent a lot of time in venture capital, startup, entrepreneurship in your career so far. When did sustainability come to be one of these pillars of your identity? Was there a specific moment, book you read, um, blog posts, et cetera? So the thing that got me into climate was the IPCC report in 2018. Before then, you're right, I had, I'd worked in Singapore, I'd worked in Cambodia, I did microfinance, um, dove into tech, was part of the founding team of a VR startup, just sort of, you know, did a lot of different things. And then when I was in New York working at the startup, I got really obsessed with the ethics of AI. And I came back to Michigan to do a PhD in statistics and devote myself to this question of how do we create ethical AI? And in my first semester of grad school, the 2018 IPCC report came out and I completely shifted everything. I, I think that I had an existential crisis as far as I know, where I just questioned why I was doing anything else with my life. So what did you do after then? So I left with a master's. Um, when I was in, in the master's program, I ended up taking some sustainable finance classes, essentially trying to at least leave with a master's because it was paid for and, and I could do that anyway, but to also learn as much as I could about climate. Got really involved in My Climate Journey, which is an awesome organization, awesome podcast, just like yours, but I definitely recommend that, that people check out. And I started uh, this ideas jam at My Climate Journey that was meant for people who want to start a company in the climate tech space. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to start a company, start an organization that can make a huge impact. And the thing that I pitched was very similar to what I ended up building at On Deck with the Climate Tech Fellowship. Um, I really wanted to be surrounded by incredibly talented people who are experts in the climate tech space, um, who maybe had PhDs in climate, who had 20, 30 years of experience in clean tech and who I could potentially partner with given that I had data science and business skills. So, so my thought actually was, I want to start a startup. I don't know how to do that. And I don't have the right network. This is such a complex space and I need to meet people who have complementary skills. I don't have that community. I can't find that community. What if my startup is actually building that community? And is that what leads you to on deck? It is. It was, it, it was incredibly fortuitous. And unexpected. Eric, I met, Eric is the founder of OnDeck and I met him during uh, the first class ever at University of Michigan. It was actually an environmental class called Global Change, first day of class, right? And we met and happened to sit next to each other. Years later, we kept in touch tangentially. I had no idea what OnDeck was. He didn't really know what I was doing with my life, except that I had gotten involved in climate. And he reached out literally two or three weeks after I had pitched that idea for community that I wanted to build. And he was like, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but we want to build a climate tech fellowship. And I think you'd be awesome at leading it. Do you want to do this? And it happened to be great timing. And I think I just realized that if I wanted this to make the biggest impact possible, then trying to do it alone could work, but also doing it in partnership with On Deck just felt like it had some more firepower behind it and could have a bigger impact in the end. Yeah. So let's talk about On Deck. How do you explain what On Deck is? I am pausing because it is this question that we ask ourselves <laughs> all the time. It's like almost a joke now internally is 
how do we talk about on deck? Because that's a question that we get all the time. So on deck, like on deck, right? That just those words on deck generally means you're on deck for something new. In the startup world, it generally means you're aspiring to start something new, whether that's a new career, a new company, um, a new exploratory phase, a sabbatical, whatever it is, you're looking to start something new. And on deck really took off in 2020 when there was this like perfect moment that was created by this awful pandemic where um, something like on deck could actually re exist remotely and make a huge impact. And so when I think of what it is and then when I try to explain it to people, the closest I can get is it's this ecosystem of incredible people who have incredible knowledge and it becomes, it aspires to become the place where just the best talent and the most ambitious builders go to start something new, go to accelerate their careers. And On Deck is composed of all of these different fellowships. And so I run the Climate Tech Fellowship. There's an Angels Fellowship. There is a No-Code Fellowship. There's a Designers Fellowship. And all these different fellowships essentially represent different nodes of the network. And there's also this connective tissue between the nodes that creates this, which I think is the, the superpower, it creates this network platform that makes it incredibly powerful for the people that are, the individuals that are part of the individual fellowships that represent the nodes of this platform. And so for an example, we have all these different fellowships, but then if I was in the Climate Tech Fellowship looking to hire a designer, we have a hiring talent hub where I can go in and search for designers, maybe hire them on a freelance basis or, or just outright hire them. If I am an entrepreneur looking to raise money, I can go to the fundraising network and connect with investors. If I'm an investor looking to invest in entrepreneurs, I you know, will get asked um, through the network if I want to be an intro to certain entrepreneurs. There's co-founder search. There are all these different networks that help bridge the gaps between these nodes of the network. And I'll say the number of people who have brought up on deck in my life, I, I hadn't heard about it until a few years ago, but some of the smartest people that I know um, are either on deck fellows or are tangentially connected to it. And our partner for season two is Brandon Anderson, who's currently an on deck um, climate tech fellow. So, uh, I mean, just in, in my network alone, I would say all the people that are working, working with or working as part or have learned from on deck is incredible. And that's partially why I'm super excited to have the conversation. Let's talk about community building. So, you know, a huge part of on deck is community building, if not the part. Uh, like how does on deck do that? What are the principles that they have defined as a successful community? I'm just smiling over here that Brendan Anderson is your partner for season two. He's he's so great. I think I DM'd with him on Slack earlier today. Um, so good catch there. He's he's great. <laughs> I'm just so 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 psyched about that. So community building 101, I I think even in a virtual environment, actually, especially in a virtual environment, it's really important to get the building blocks of community building right. And so it's really going back to the basics, I believe, and making sure that we are incredibly intentional about getting those things right. And so when I think about the community that I'm, that I'm building, it's really for myself. I, I couldn't find this community out there. And so I wanted to build it so that I could reap the benefits of being a part of that community. And it's, it's worked out really well for me and, and hopefully a lot of other people. And the things that I need to reap the benefits of a community is to feel really welcome in that community and feel like I can bring 
my whole and authentic self to that community. And feeling welcome is actually something that we measure. And so we ask in our milestone survey and, and different surveys that we send out to our fellows, how welcomed do you feel in the fellowship? And the numbers are always luckily really high, but that's because we care a lot about it. So that's the, the first thing is how welcome do people feel? Another piece that is incredibly important is do people feel connected to both the mission of like the larger community, but also the mission of the other people in the fellowship. And we're really lucky that climate is a really mission oriented space, right? There, there are just so many incredible people who don't really care who gets the glory or who makes all the money or the majority of the money or whatever it is. I think we generally just care that climate impact is made, however it's made. And so I think I'm lucky in the sense that I'm building a community in a space that is so mission oriented and it's so easy for people to feel connected to that and to feel connected to each other's missions. But the other couple things that I think are really special about On Deck and what we're really uh, focused on is having people who are givers. And something that we talk about during our kickoff events is we, we suggest actually, because it's in our fellows' best interest, we believe, to think about how they can give two times more than they receive. And that's something that fellows have cited to me over and over again. Like, I love that you mentioned giving two times more than, than receiving. And I do that. And I can tell that everyone is doing that back to me so much so that it's, you know, I, I almost feel like I'm getting so much out of this and I have to give even more. I want to give even more back. And it just creates this beautiful network and community. And the last thing I'll say about Community Building 101 is, and again, something that, that we really care a lot about is helping people understand why they're in that community. So it relates to mission, but it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more uh, detail oriented around what is your specific goal and how can you keep yourself accountable to that goal? So at the beginning of every fellowship, we have an intentional goal setting workshop. And then we set you up in a one-on-one -on -one breakout room with someone else who sometimes becomes your accountability buddy. And then we check in on those goals to make sure that you feel like you are getting closer to achieving them. And so that's Community Building 101. I have more thoughts on online and virtual communities if, if that's something you want to go into. So uh, so one of the things I'm, I'm wondering is that you know, one of OnDeck's missions is to expand this program to reach hundreds of thousands of people. Is there a zero-sum part of community building in terms of the connection that you mentioned or the closeness and that feeling that you feel connected to the other individuals, does that not, not disintegrate, but does it lessen as you grow the community of on-deck fellows? As this fellowship grows, it's really important that we maintain a sense of closeness. And that's, you know, honestly and transparently, some feedback that we've gotten is that it does feel big. Right now in our second cohort, we had 180 fellows. And in the future, we're going to maintain a strict cutoff at 150 and then also be a lot more cognizant of creating smaller communities within that larger community. So we already have these smaller crews that are essentially mastermind groups of five to seven people. We are also setting out tracks where it is based on, you know, what your goals are. And so we have people who are climate deep and are looking for ideas, maybe in the climate space, you're looking to fundraise or hire. And then on the flip side, we have people who are looking for jobs or looking to invest. All those people come with different backgrounds and have different goals. And so if we can 
essentially slice and dice the, the larger community to be incredibly helpful to those folks, then it feels like a tight knit, smaller community. And we also have a lot of tools. And so going into what it means to run a virtual community and, and how we actually make it work, because it can, it can sound wild. And I had no idea that a virtual space could be almost as powerful as an in-person space, but it takes a lot of a lot of thinking through what tools we even use and getting that nitty gritty. And so the product that we're building internally to on deck is called the directory. And that's a place where you can internally search for certain types of people. So if you want to look for a designer, for example, then you can search for it for a designer and they'll come up. Um, and that's just one example way to, to make sure that the fellowship feels small is make sure that you know who your people are, make sure that you know who the people that have complementary skills to you are and make sure that you know how to get in touch with people that can help you grow your business or that you can hire or that, you know, can invest in your company. And bringing this full circle back to, you know, how communities can bring the world closer to net zero emissions. Um, how does the Climate Tech Fellowship compare in terms of the, the, the interest to in terms of the applicants and the growing field. So, you know, like you mentioned, Audec has other fellowships for health and fintech and, and a bunch of other fields as well. Are you seeing that climate tech specifically is a growing burgeoning applicant pool compared to the other um, compared to other fellowships? I would say so. We have generally about I think it's four to five times the number of applications as the number of people that we accept. And so we have 150 person cohorts every quarter. And every time we open up an application, they're actually rolling right now, but every time we look at the number of applications for a certain fellowship, it's somewhere between I think 700 to 800 applications. And so there are just a ton of people, Nathan, and I'm sure, I mean, you're essentially one of them, right? Who has a lot of skills outside of climate and is now looking to get into climate. And so I would say that's the vast majority of our, of the influx of applications that we get, which is people trying to get into the climate tech space and using this as a bridge to get in, right? There's no law school to climate change, to get into climate change. Um, and we're not, you know, we're not a curriculum, we're not a school in that traditional sense, but we are an awesome ecosystem that helps a lot of people get in. And so that's the, the vast majority of applicants. Then the other majority are people who are deep in climate, potentially academics, people who have spent you know, we had, we had a, a lawyer who spent 30 years in the clean energy space and is starting a company that has deep expertise in that space and makes so much sense for the company that he's starting. But this is a great way for him to understand how to start a company and to get connected with people who have those skills as well, who have been entrepreneurs for non-climate tech companies and can bring those skills to climate tech. And, and the idea in terms of like measuring success in addition, is, is it the number of companies that come out of OnDeck, uh, the OnDeck Climate Tech Fellowship? Um, like, I, you know, for me, I was thinking about, I'm sure you guys talk about flywheels, such like a hot tech VC word, right? But it's like people join on tech, uh, specifically climate tech fellows, right? Then they start companies, more interested people get in climate because these companies are awesome. And then more people join on deck to become climate fellows, to get into climate tech, right? And then the flywheel spins. Um, but that's my idea from your perspective. How do you measure success specifically in terms of helping move the world closer uh, to stop the fight against, to stop <laughs> climate change? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And essentially the way that I would think about it is one, it's a it's an ongoing question that we have. So I don't have the exact answer of this is this is what we measure and this is what we care about. Um, or this is even how we measure it, right? Because measuring the number of companies that come out of it is a bit hard. Um, same with uh 
all of these more lagging indicators. What I can tell you is in the first 10 weeks of the first fellowship, 10 people found co-founders and 12 people were hired. So that's a great unit of success, but I'm sure there have been a lot more uh, people who have been hired and found co-founders and fundraised since then that we just haven't kept track of and we need to do a better job of doing that. So it is important, I think, that companies are started and that is one of our three goals. So if I laid it out, the first one is more of an ethereal goal, which is having everything that we do and every fellow leave the fellowship with a sense of stubborn optimism that's still rooted in realism, but essentially understanding that there is some mature hope in the space that we can take action, we still have time, and that actually having a bias for action and maintaining that long-term is the best thing that we can do. So that's the first goal. And again, that's really, really hard to measure, but it underlies everything that we do. The second is all hands on deck, which uh, is a pun of on deck, but also essentially says that we want more people coming into climate tech. And so if you're someone who doesn't have a background in climate and you were looking for a job or to start a company in climate, if either of those things happened, that is a huge win for the future of the world, right? We just took someone who was working on something else and have them now working on something in climate. That, that is something that we absolutely want to measure. And then the third, like you said, is starting companies, companies that, were, that raise money, essentially success of, of entrepreneurs. And the reason why we care about that is because I believe that given where we're at today in the climate tech space, it's more important than ever that companies are started, or at least that new solutions are tested and we essentially throw things against the wall and see what sticks. And I hope that in five years from now, our fellowship and the general ecosystem is ready and mature enough that our focus can be more on scaling companies and scaling solutions that we know work really well. And uh, you know, both tech technologically work, but also have a business model that um, is profitable and sustainable. But today, I really think it's more about getting more shots on goal, which is why we do care a lot about whether or not new companies have started and if those new, new companies have raised money, found co-founders, um, hired their first employees, and just been able to get off the ground. Kansas and I continue the discussion on climate tech, the On Deck Fellowship, and community building after the break. Are you interested in living a net zero life, but you don't know where to start? The Net Zero Life team is working with a few of our colleagues to offer a free sustainability coaching session for a select number of followers. Follow us on Instagram at The Net Zero Life and send us a DM to learn more. You know, one of the things I'm curious about is uh, how do you, so you get to interact with all these awesome people thinking about climate differently. What frameworks or methodologies have you picked up in terms of how to break up the word climate tech or sustainability? I take it as a personal responsibility to expand the definition of climate tech. We thought through, I thought through whether or not we wanted to call this fellowship climate tech or climate change or just climate. And I chose climate tech because it can feel so narrow. It can feel like it has to be a technology innovation that feels sci-fi. And, and I think that's just the, the, the feeling of climate tech. And this fellowship is not just for people who are building technical innovations. It's very deliberately for people who are also building business model innovations. And so scaling current technologies, if it's solar or wind or whatever it is, if you're scaling a technology that exists today, but isn't as common as it should be, 
then that's, in my view, climate tech. That is something that absolutely falls under that, that category. We don't want to over-index on any one type of solution because our whole thesis, my whole thesis, is that climate tech as a space is has room for everyone and has room for all these different types of solutions. And that it's one of the levers in climate that is helpful. So we're not going to discount policy or corporate sustainability or all these other incredibly helpful and important and necessary levers. We just happen to be focused on entrepreneurship. And within that, we're not limiting ourselves to technical innovation. We include business model innovation, financial innovation, like financial new financial instruments are incredibly important. Thinking about even the the, the VC space, right? And how that can be more friendly to climate tech companies and to deep, te deep tech companies. There's so much innovation that is possible that, that I don't want to limit that for our fellows or for the entire space. How, how is VC space not friendly to climate tech today? Ah, ah if I said that, then, then I was wrong. It is not not friendly, but not every company, and I don't know if this, it's the majority or not, but VC money is not going to be the right type of money for a lot of companies. And VCs will say this all the time, right? It's not like a, it's not a secret at all. It's, it's something that they're very aware of and it's not a bad thing. The fact is just that not every company that is a startup um, that doesn't exist today, for example, will be suitable for VC money. And so a lot of companies will do better getting catalytic capital under prime coalition or getting undiluted funding from the government or from philanthropists, for example, or will want project finance because it's more, it just needs a lot more money. And maybe it's actually a more proven technology. Um, whereas, you know, government grants are, are generally for more unproven technology that's not ready for VC yet. And so it is friendly and, and a lot of climate tech companies use VC money and get a lot out of it. They're incredible VCs in this space. But there, I think, is a lot of room for improvement, or not improvement, a lot of room for expansion of the financial instruments that we can use in the climate tech space to cover all the different types of solutions that we need out in the world. Which is, brings me to a question I love to ask, which is, how do you, how do you um, view capitalism as a mechanism to help get the world closer to net zero emissions? It's the only mechanism that we have today. And we have to play within the mechanism that we have in the world that we have today. And I think that's part of um, the idea of like stubborn optimism rooted in realism. We have to be real about what is possible given the constraints of the world that we live in, right? Having a tech startup that is meant to be a for-profit that cannot make a profit should be a nonprofit. And that's, and if it can survive as a nonprofit and find sources of funding, fantastic. Right. And so I think understanding the systems that we live in and how to take advantage of that in terms of, of building companies that have the right types of business models, um, also companies that take advantage of policy and take advantage of hopefully subsidies that, that become more common in the years to come. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm answering your question, but essentially I think we just have to understand capitalism well enough to take advantage of the pros of capitalism and also understand the cons and work around those. Yeah, money is a super funny thing. I mean, everyone who reads Sapiens 
and if you haven't, everyone should, uh, in my opinion, at least, uh, you know, money is a myth and money as a motivator is kind of this tool that's united humanity. It's one of the few shared myths that transcends religion, communities, geographies, all this good stuff. Um, I want to make sure we get some time to kind of hear uh, your personal philosophies. So two two questions. One, what does the On Deck Fellowship look like? Someone who's curious uh, about, like, wants to wants to be a part of it. What can they expect from the day they walk in to the day they leave? Day they walk in, they'll get a really fun kickoff and it'll be incredibly high energy. You'll meet a ton of incredible folks who are hopefully a lot less like you than, than the people that you meet in your everyday life. And, and hopefully that continues throughout the fellowship. And so we're moving toward this year long model where instead of just giving you an eight to 10 week fellowship that tries to pack in everything in those eight to 10 weeks, tries to introduce you to everyone and uh, bring in all these awesome speakers for just that amount of time, we're actually giving people a year-long membership, which uh, makes it essentially more possible for you to, to get as much value out of it as possible. And so let's take that first eight weeks of that year-long membership, where it's essentially an onboarding or an immersive, where we recommend spending probably three to five hours a week on the fellowship so that you can, um, one, engage with external speakers who are incredible. The, the speaker list is, is super diverse, as diverse as as the fellows in terms of their backgrounds, we had Kate Gordon on policy, uh, Albert Wanger on VC, Bill McKibben on, on movement building. And so we try to bring in these, these incredible speakers from the outside, make them accessible to our fellows and, and always have a live Q&A so that people, our fellows can ask live questions. And that's one component of it is, is every day there's, there's some sort of awesome external speaker. But the beauty too is that everyone in the fellowship is an expert in their own right. And so we have community events where our fellows will lead community events and, uh, and just you know lead a topic that, that they're an expert in, lead a discussion on whatever they're interested in. We have a ton of socials. And so those will happen a couple of times a week. Those can be essentially like speed dating socials. And that's how a lot of co-founders are actually randomly found on, uh, by doing these speed dating socials. We have crews that are weekly. And so those are the weekly masterminds where it's a small group of five to seven people where you share, you know, your high swings, your, your lows, um, and really workshop some of the problems that you're coming across in your company or in the certain stage that you're at. And then a couple other things that I think are, are incredibly important is coming out of the first eight to 10 weeks and having touch points throughout the fellowship throughout the full year that are points where you can have a tangible outcome. It's like a forcing function for you to say, okay, I'm going to use this three-week period that's a build sprint to work with five other people in the fellowship and come out of this with potentially a research document, a blog post, a pitch deck, or an actual pitch that you'll start pitching to investors. Um, it can be a, a range of things, but essentially it's a forcing function to have a tangible outcome and to also in the process get to know people really deeply. And that's really the last thing, which is the most important thing that you can do and get out of the fellowship is meet all the other incredible people. And the most important thing I can do is stack the fellowship with the coolest people and the, the most brilliant people that are in the space and outside of the space coming in and make sure also that it's the right composition. And so we don't over-index on any one type of person and we have the right number of builders and joiners of climate tech startups, as well as investors and advisors and policy experts we have a 50-50 about split of people who are climate deep and people who are entrepreneurial deep or have other types of expertise. And um, yeah, really at the end of the day, it's, it's about meeting awesome people and having generally a lot of one-on-ones. 
uh, with folks and coming out of the coming out of the fellowship with some number of deep and meaningful relationships that you can carry throughout your your career or your life. Like that is that's my end goal for everyone. And I think that's kind of what the heart of community is, which is feeling a one-on-one connection to a, a number of group of people and having a shared identity. Um, what does success look like for you personally and the OCDT, ODCT? I'm going to get it right, I promise. For, for ODCT, success is always the amount of impact that we can enable our fellows to do. So if we can accelerate them toward their goals that then increase impact, that's that's awesome. And our general thesis is that if you bring together these brilliant people, then it's more likely that they will co-found awesome companies that are more likely to scale and make that big impact. So that's really my end goal it is it's all impact oriented. If we, um, you know, I, I'd be down to change the entire fellowship if tomorrow someone said, this is what you can do that would actually increase the, the impact that you're providing for all the fellows. Um, so, so that's my goal for ODCT, whatever that looks like. And my goal for myself is to, this is my short-term goal. I, I've become obsessed with this idea of essentially solving climate change together, but also creating visions of hope and um, visions of what could be possible if we all work together. It's obviously very aligned with community building and with the work that I'm doing at ODCT, but I just don't see a lot of, I see, okay, so Nathan, if there is an apocalyptic future or vision of the world, I imagine that you would be able to like come up with that in your head and literally like smell what it smells like, see see it all, um, feel it. Like you would have a really clear vision of an apocalyptic future, especially when it comes to climate change, right? Like we have those visuals and we have the stories. And the IPCC report is almost like, can, can almost become that visual. And what I think we don't have as much is, and you can tell me if, if you do have it, but I don't think we have these ideas of what <laughs> say like a, a utopian vision is, but actually what a positive world or a positive outcome could be. And how can we use the climate crisis or consider the climate crisis an opportunity to multi-solve and create a better world and, and solve some of the climate pieces as a byproduct, even if it's our fo- focus. Um, so for example, there are so many health outcomes that will just be better when, we, when we're better about climate. And so how do we think about the world that we want to live in, create a visual, be able to like smell it, feel it, talk about it and visualize it in a way that compels people to actually work toward that and to know that there is a world that is better than we can imagine. That's not, again, not utopian and not not rooted in this false hope that, or like a magical hope, but it's actually rooted in this idea that if we actually all work together and there's so many people that want to make an impact on climate, that if we can come together around a compelling vision that feels somewhat achievable, even if it's a reach goal, if it feels achievable and we're solving all these other problems while solving climate, like that, I want to get us to a vision that we can all align on and and work toward together. Yeah, I love it. We, Diego, Saz, Gil, and I talked about this a little bit in episode number 11 of The Net Zero Life, which is climate change as a shared narrative that again, similar to money, extends beyond borders. It's the one thing that every country can agree on, right? And we're going to have COP26 uh, that's exactly going to prove that point. 
And it's kind of this idea, like you, to build a community, you have to have a shared enemy. I think climate change is that narrative. Um, and I, I, it's one thing that inspires me. It's, it's something that you can connect to, connect with on an individual across, as you said, like a, a complete diverse set of backgrounds, identities, religions, all of the above. Um, let's jump to you really quick. Uh, so, or not really quick. We take as much time as you want since uh, creating the On Deck Climate Tech Fellowship. Is there anything that you become more sensitive in terms of your own carbon footprint? No, I, I am completely opposed to the idea that that spending any sizable amount of time on optimizing for our personal carbon footprints is the thing that we should be focused on. And I think I generally just have a small footprint. I'm very much a minimalist and I don't eat that much meat. And I think just ethically, I do naturally like subconsciously think about it, but, but I also am just in practice and in theory, really, really um, allergic to the idea that we should be thinking about personal carbon footprints when I think we should be thinking about movement creation and the fact that Bill McKibben mentioned that 3.5% of the population is like that magic number. So this idea that a small group of people can make the biggest change. And also his whole thing was that the tipping point or the threshold of the population that is required to create a movement is 3.5%. It's a lot of people in numbers, but that's a really, really small percentage. And so if we could take all those people who are measuring the carbon footprints, which is a fossil fuel construct, right? That was created to shift our, our attention away from, you know, what can we do together to what can we do individually? But if we instead think about what we can do together, I think we accomplish so much more. So I, I try to ignore it, even though I, I generally have a small footprint probably, but even if I didn't, I don't think I would feel that bad about it as long as I was working on the movement pieces and the community pieces. What's the best class you've ever taken? Women in war in the Middle East. How come? It's, I think in terms of identity, I have not felt super identified as an Iraqi Catholic with my community. And, and I think um, I've always been slightly different or whatever. And this was a class of mostly Arabs and mostly Arab women talking about wars. And it was a tiny class, 10 people. And it totally shifted my perspective on the way that we talk about, essentially what I learned was that the way that we talk about war in the US from a US perspective, especially when it comes to the Middle East is about saving women. And that actually the oppression of women in Middle Eastern countries is often as a counter to the US. And so it's often because of US's involvement at all that people in those countries will say, we're not like the US, we want to be, you know, we want to say that women can't do things or whatever. And before US involvement, those countries were actually incredibly liberal and, and even more so than, than we are with women. And so then it creates this narrative that the US can go in and save the women. And you see this in Afghanistan even today, where the, the view is, and the, the focus is on what's going to happen to the women there. And, and obviously we should be focused on that, but it's also worth being cognizant about our influence and why it's like that. And also why we're focusing on women and not focused on brown men or, you know, other pieces of the, the puzzle. 
when you think of sustainability superheroes, who comes to mind? I am Elizabeth Johnson. I think she's brilliant. And she's definitely someone who thinks about community building and um, brilliant podcaster, brilliant communicator, brilliant scientist. And she, she has this concentric circle diagram. It's a Venn diagram. And she gets asked this question all the time of what should I do? Everyone wants to do something in climate. If we could just say, this is what you should do, then I think a lot of people would be involved. Um, and that's part of why I'm obsessed about this, this idea of vision. But the concentric circles are essentially what brings you joy. And um, if you ignore that, you'll get burnt out. But but really think about like what brings you joy. And then the other circle is... Yeah. <laughs> What are the climate solutions, the justice solutions that will lead us to a more sustainable economy? And then what are you good at? So what are your skills? What's your expertise? And if you can figure out what's at the, the middle of those three circles, then you have a very clear idea of what you should do. And you also can experiment. Um, I think doing anything in climate is great. And you don't have to worry about what the one thing that will make the biggest impact is, because I don't think there is that one thing. I think there are a million different things that a person could be doing, and it really is specific to what they're good at, what brings them joy, and also what work needs to get done. Plus one, she's fantastic, and she also has a great podcast, as you mentioned, called How to Save the Planet. So make sure to go check that out. Um, what is one book, podcast, blog post, whatever, that you wish every single person would read? This is really unfair to everyone else because um, there are so many incredible heroes. But actually, I'll, I'll give you two because my first thought was All We Can Save. It's a, the book that we send every ODCT fellow. So this is sort of cheating because this first book is has Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson as the editor. It also has Catherine Wilkinson. It's all it's all articles and poems, and so it's a lot of you know short stories and, and shorter pieces. But it's all by women, so climate scientists activists. It's, it's an amazing book. And I would recommend that everyone reads that. The other one is Braiding Sweetgrass. And it is just this gorgeous book about, I think, our relationship with, with the world. The narrative and the language is gorgeous. Like nothing beats the way that this woman writes. Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is, uh, I think she's an ecologist and, and a professor and she's indigenous and her relationship with the, with the earth feels contagious just in the way that she writes. Amazing. Kind of reminds me of the overstory. If you, if you read that. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Final two questions. Are you hiring? And what do you tell people who are interested in working out on deck? On deck as a whole is absolutely hiring. And what I tell people is it's a lot of work and it's incredibly rewarding. If you know why you're doing it. How should people get in touch if they want to connect with you? They can do Twitter. <laughs> I'm new to Twitter, so, <laughs> so I guess they can What's tweet at me, um, C-A-M-M-O-R-I, and I'm also at cmori at gmail.com, so that's my email. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I had a great time, and hopefully you did as well. I did. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks again to Candice for joining us today. You can connect with Candice on Twitter at Ciamori, that's C-A-M-M-O-R-I, or reach out through email ciamori at gmail.com. Get in touch with me and the rest of the team via all of our socials by following at the Net Zero Life. If you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. 
This episode was produced by Tony Levitt. The original music was composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Thank you.